This SCCMI Critical Care Podcast is sponsored by Nestle Health Science. Our pediatric portfolio offers a comprehensive range of standard and specialty formulas for oral use and tube feeding, including Peptamin Jr., a 100% whey protein peptide-based formula for children with GI impairment. Nestle Health Science, nourishing personal health. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Nilesh M. Mehta, MD, about the article, A Stepwise Enteral Nutrition Algorithm for Critically Ill Children Helps Achieve Nutrient Delivery Goals, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in September 2014. Dr. Mehta is an Associate Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School, Associate Medical Director of Critical Care in the Department of Anesthesiology, Pain, and Perioperative Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital, and the Director of the Critical Care Nutrition Program at Boston Children's. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Mehta. Hello, Dr. Parker. I'm delighted to speak with you, and thank you for the opportunity. Would you start by giving us some background for your study and what made you develop this nutrition algorithm? Sure. I think there are three main reasons that pushed us into this process to look into our approach with feeding our critically ill children and come to some uniform agreement amongst the various stakeholders. The main reason was there appears to be evolving consensus amongst us as physicians and dietitians that while many other things are controversial in the field of critical care nutrition, one thing we agree on is enteral nutrition appears to be of significant benefit compared to parenteral nutrition when it comes to a critically ill patient. It has putative benefit to the gut, both in terms of mucosal integrity and even immune function. And uh, certainly, parental nutrition, when used not judiciously, is associated with side effects that we can ill afford. Having said that, we ourselves in our unit and many others like us have shown that enteral nutrient delivery in the pediatric ICU remains very challenging. In our own unit, we've documented many barriers that prevented us to feed critically ill children in the gut. We published these findings in 2008 in the Journal of Parental and Enteral Nutrition, where uh, over a period of four weeks, we documented multiple interruptions to enteral nutrition. In fact, uh, these interruptions amounted to over 1,500 hours of forced starvation in our patients. And there were many reasons, and we understand that some of them are truly uh, not avoidable, but we found that it was lack of our foresight and prioritization that many of these patients were starving for periods much longer than one would have actually anticipated or would be recommended. And what happened in this study is we found that uh, patients who had these interruptions actually, not surprisingly, failed to reach caloric goals. They had longer periods before they could reach their goal nutrition. And more importantly, they were reliant on parental nutrition with higher costs and risks of infectious outcomes. So based on these two observations, and then finally, we did our international study just a few years ago. The results were published in Critical Care Medicine in 2012, where over 500 mechanically ventilated patients from 31 pediatric ICUs in eight countries, um, uh, we observed in this cohort that only 40% of what was prescribed in terms of energy and protein goal were ever met or delivered during the first week in the pediatric ICU. And not only was that alarming, what was interesting is that the intake of a higher percentage of the goal energy. This means that intake of a higher percentage of what was actually prescribed was associated with improved 60-day survival. This was even after accounting for severity of illness. And uh, in that study, we found that use of an algorithmic approach to nutrient delivery was associated with uh, lower nosocomial infections. So we thought these associations were uh, significant. We thought our current practices were fairly uh, 
dismal and there was a lot to be improved on and uh, it was time to look into coming towards a some kind of consensus uh, with the aim to promote enteral nutrition so that its benefits might be realized in our population. So how did you go about developing the algorithm? It was a very interesting process. Uh, like most implementation of either algorithms or guidelines in a unit, we had to make sure that this was a multidisciplinary collaborative process. So we invited representatives from all relevant disciplines. These included critical care nursing, critical care physicians, nutritionists or dietitians, gastroenterologists from my center, surgeons, pharmacists, and even respiratory therapists. And these we identified as key stakeholders who not only had significant input on nutrient delivery processes at the bedside, but uh, was important to get their buy-in if we were to succeed in this implementation. So once we gathered this multidisciplinary group, we started looking at some of our previous work to be guided in terms of what are our gaps, both in knowledge and practice. And based on that information from our center and then from the literature, we outlined uh, some key questions that were devised uh, almost as areas of inquiry and divided amongst the working groups. These key questions related to uh, how do you perform nutritional assessment and screening in patients coming to the ICU? What are the indications and contraindications to EN? How do you advance EN? What are the risk factors and how do you prevent aspiration of uh, gastric contents? Uh, how would you define EN intolerance and manage it? Uh, what's the role of adjuncts like antacids and promotility agents? Bowel management strategies, what's the best uh, evidence out there in terms of treatment and prevention of constipation? And then finally, what do we do with uh, fasting times? So the designated groups took each of these inquiry areas and uh, undertook a systematic literature review. And they searched, graded, and then came back and reported on the evidence available. And then once all this was gathered, the group together as a whole uh, took an iterative process where these recommendations were translated into stepwise decision points. And then a final algorithm was drafted, which included some of these areas. And figure one in our paper, we've given a fairly... Uh, a comprehensive depiction of that algorithm. And if you look at the final uh, version, it has steps that, again, take you through uh, nutritional assessment and establishing of goals, selection of mode of delivery, route of delivery, and then finally, how do you initiate and almost in an automatic feedback loop uh, driven by nurses at the bedside, how do you advance to goal with the nutrition uh, delivery? What kind of challenges did you run into in implementing this once you developed this algorithm? I, I can't imagine that everybody all <laughs> immediately adopted it with great enthusiasm. So. You're absolutely right. And and again, we were, we were uh, aware of challenges to implementing something which seems prescriptive. We believe our discipline has a fine balance between the art and science uh, uh, of critical care. And, and um, we were mindful of challenges. One of the main challenges you outlined, Dr. Parker, is the whole concept of buy-in and uh, how does one get people to overcome these barriers. To, to my mind, there are two types of barriers. One is the workflow and how it gets affected by a new pro process that you put in. And the second one is the mental barriers or the myths, and, uh, and if you like. So in terms of the workflow barriers, our implementation process was very uh, much multi-pronged. What we did is we had to uh, initially determine what were the knowledge deficits in our group, and we undertook some pre-tests, and we, we uh, identified what would go into a computerized learning module, which was disseminated, again, outlining the key principles as to why we do what we do in this new algorithm. And then we did uh, one 
one-to-one education, weekly nutrition rounds performed by champions that were identified from this guideline committee. And then um, once this was done, we disseminated the algorithm via both paper and electronic format where it was available on every computer at the bedside. The champions were able to be available during the implementation phase to troubleshoot and help. um, And then finally, what we did is we incorporated discussion of nutrition even more uh, objectively using these um, the algorithm during the daily morning rounds as a checklist. So these helped with workflow barriers and people were gradually able to overcome them. Your main question is how does one get buy-in from everybody, and especially in an area of nutrition which already had firmly established practices, whether they were born out of evidence or simply because that's how they did before, that was challenging. I, I, I think the main thing we did to address that was the multidisciplinary collaboration to involve key stakeholders, to involve people that actually had an opinion and and were able to contribute not only in the development process, but then help implement it was our biggest strength. And lastly, I would say we are terribly fortunate that, you know, the leadership in the unit led the way in terms of establishing that nutrition delivery or optimal nutrient delivery is a priority for us as a unit. And that does help a lot in terms of establishing new processes aimed at optimal practice. One of the things that you talked about a minute ago was the sticking to the practice as we've always done it, despite lack of sufficient data. And one of the things that you included in your algorithm, which I thought was particularly interesting, was defining up front what is feeding intolerance and what is an avoidable enteral nutrition interruption. Can you talk about those? Yeah, I think you have... Uh, alluded to probably the most principal barrier that any unit is currently uh, experiencing in delivering enteral nutrient to the critically ill child. The EN intolerance was almost a perceived EN intolerance. When we uh, looked at our practices, as I mentioned in 2008, when we published our first paper on what are our challenges at the bedside, we found alarming facts which were both entertaining as well as disappointing. And EN intolerance was almost something that everybody had their own definition for. To give you an example, feeds would be stopped based on gastric residual volumes for decades now in our ICUs. And gastric residual volume, uh, actually the last five years have been very illuminating for how um, poor this particular clinical practice is in terms of identifying truly who is at risk of aspiration and who is not tolerating enteral nutrition. A recent paper suggested that everybody has their own way of performing a gastric residual aspirate. And as a result, they simulated where just minor changes in your practice can completely alter what you get back. And then the thresholds as to what defines intolerance in terms of gastric residual volume. The adult literature has a plethora of studies. In fact, one recent uh, adult study said that if you adopted a gastric residual volume guided approach to feeding versus one where you ignore gastric residual volume, there is no difference in risk of aspiration. And then finally, uh, we found that the the threshold, even when it is established in centers all over the place, it appears to be completely uh, not uniform. So um, in answer to your question, I think we had to focus on this area uh, quite a lot. So right from starting or initiating the enteral nutrition, we had to be sure that we provide stepwise guide guidelines as to how does 
the bedside nurse uh, advance, both in terms of the speed of advancement, the volume of advancement, and then what does one do in terms of monitoring for intolerance? Because irrespective of the lack of agreement on the subject, it is important that we deliver these nutrients safely. So we put in an objective definition as best as we could understand from the literature and based on our consensus. So this current publication has an appendix which shows what would be our definition. And again, it's not necessarily the perfect definition, but we articulated two things. One is uh, that gastric residual volume on its own is not equal to um, a definitive sign of EN intolerance, and it should be uh, taken into consideration only in uh, combination with other signs. And we outline vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal distension, and abdominal discomfort when available in some patients. And we've identified how much vomiting and how much diarrhea you should have. Again, as I said, we don't know if this is the perfect definition, an area ripe for research, and certainly many people, including us, are looking at it. But then based on that definition, it allowed our, our algorithm to instruct the bedside team to consider strategies to overcome it. So that would include either stopping for a period, period of time and then reassessing uh, and then if this persists, uh, looking for other adjuncts. And, and that piece of the algorithm, I believe, is unique. And, and others have it. Uh, we thought we went in deeper. And now, uh, looking at it back two years since we have implemented this, we, we find that to be the strength and has helped significantly in improving our ability to reach goal. So how did you evaluate this uh, intervention once you put it in place? In terms of evaluation, we were fortunate that the implementation was preceded by this very detailed audit of our practice that we had done and reported in 2008. So if one looks at what was happening in the unit in 2008, we had three distinct areas where we struggled. The first one was how long does it take to start enteral nutrition on the unit. To be fair, we were not too bad with initiating enteral nutrition, but but we then stumbled by a number of interruptions. So then how long does it take for one to reach the enteral nutritional prescribed goal? So using these two as the first two endpoints, if you like, or outcomes, we decided to replicate the audit exactly the way we had done it before. Uh, after the implementation of the algorithm. The third thing we looked at was, can we actually improve the ability to reach the goal, both in terms of how many patients reach goal uh, in the unit during that period and uh, how fast? And that is reflected in our figure two, which is the Kaplan-Meier plot showing proportion of patients having reached uh, energy goal in the PICU in relation to the day since admission to the ICU. And we use these three principal outcome measures. We also looked at cost, but this was a secondary measure, and this is by no means a prospectively designed study to examine cost savings, but we did have the data available from even the previous audit in terms of PNUs, and we thought we would use that as a secondary outcome. So you alluded to your Kaplan-Meier curve. What did you find when you compared your nutrition success or lack thereof from 2008 with that after you implemented this algorithm? One of the principal things we found is, uh, as I alluded to earlier, the the stepwise 
and almost time-sensitive initiation and then rapid advancement of enteral nutrition, it guaranteed that when you came back on rounds the very next day, the four hourly incremental steps uh, meant that you either had a, a smooth transition from initiation phase to complete uh, goal achievement within 24 hours, which means the next day on rounds, one would either have a goal reached or one would question as to why the goal was not reached. So this uh, the so-called nurse-driven uh, time-sensitive factor in our algorithm not surprisingly helped us to increase the proportion of patients that reach goal uh, faster. So the, the Kaplan-Meier showed that the cumulative proportion of patients reaching energy goal for each day uh, after admission was significantly different. We had almost if I'm, look, I'm looking at the figure myself right now, and it shows that by day two and day three, uh, we now have 80% of our patients having reached their energy goals by the enteral nutrient route, whereas in the previous audit, the pre-implementation phase, this number was close to 40 and 50%. So there was a significant jump in both number of patients, the proportion of patients reaching goal, and how fast they reached this goal. Can you talk a little bit about how you determine the nutrition goal? That's a good point. So if you um, look at the algorithm that we have shown the the representative here, one of the first things that it says here is select route of nutrition enteral or parenteral. The the original the actual full uh, version of the algorithm includes a step even before that, and this step is the one that shows how does one achieve uh, how does one describe or prescribe the goal, and this is done by the dietitian in our unit. It was part of a concerted effort to make sure that the, every patient is assigned both a nutrition screening as well as a nutrition plan, if you like. So in our unit right now, there are three levels of screening. The the diet technicians, technicians at the hospital level screen every patient admitted to the hospital within 48 hours. The, the PICU nurses uh, undertake their second level screening, which is using standard anthropometry, and it goes into the EMR where it automatically plots on uh, uh, the prescribed uh, reference charts and gives us a classification based on WHO for nutritional status. And then the, the nutritionist who uh, then uh, does the third level screening on patients that meet criteria for malnutrition or have other risk factors. And once a nutritionist does that, uh, there is a recommended energy and protein goal in terms of kilocals per day and grams per day respectively that are assigned for each and every individual patient on admission. And these goals are then revised by the presence of dietitian and the discussion on daily rounds for each patient. Uh, we currently have an FTE of 0 0.4, uh, which means we have one dietitian on a 29-bedded unit who's present uh, every day and may not be on every round because we have three teams, but is available for consultation on every single patient. And I would add that our unit is slightly different in terms of our ability to do indirect calorimetry. So we do have a small fraction of our patients who undergo indirect calorimetry to determine their true energy requirements. And we've described this approach in the past where we call it a targeted approach, wherein not Everybody needs indirect calorimetry, but there are high-risk patients where we believe, uh, and we and others have shown so many times, that our ability to guess or estimate their energy requirement is completely erroneous. And in those patients, we do use indirect calorimetry to arrive at daily uh, caloric goal. Do you have any clinical outcome uh, data on the patients that you've taken care of since you've implemented this um, algorithm compared to six or seven years ago? 
not, not in relation to this exact cohort that is described in the current paper, because it was a four-week study, and we wanted to stick to more the outline initial objective, which was, can we actually begin to impact nutrient delivery? So for this study, you're absolutely right in terms of the, the outcomes are actually all intermediate, which means we are presuming that the articulated goal of improving nutrient delivery will have translated clinical outcomes, whether it is survival or more likely uh, morbidities such as infectious and, and then maybe even uh, anthropometric and strength related. But for the current study, the outcomes are intermediate and, and our goal was can we impact our practices by a, by a simple uniform approach. But your question is very relevant and currently we have at least two and then subsequently a third study which now begins to take a step further and say, uh, now that we've arrived at, an, at a stage where our practices are uniform and we've gotten uh, to a level where a fair number of our patients reach goal, can we now in the standardized nutrient delivery era look for the next step as to how do we impact outcomes. And the outcomes that we are most interested in currently are more related to protein delivery. And we're looking at muscle mass and muscle strength. And the models for that are still in development in our PQ population. And perhaps the next five to 10 years uh, of work uh, cut out for us. <laughs> I think you're right about that. Um, you uh, mentioned earlier that you had also looked at cost. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Again, the cost, uh, this was actually one of the amazing results of implementing our algorithm. My dietitian group and the nutrition group in the hospital will often come by and tell us how they suddenly notice a complete drop in our PNUs. What happened between the two periods was interesting, which kind of makes this analysis a little murky, which is we developed a new program and uh, have a very active esophageal atresia program. So patients are undergoing stepwise surgery and staying on the units for a fair number of time. So at any given time since the implementation, we have patients who are not eligible for enteral nutrition and on parenteral nutrition. So if you take that group out, which was not present in the pre-implementation cohort, our use of PN, especially in patients who are eligible for EN and uh, in the past were simply reliant on PN because their enteral nutrition was not optimized, that's almost plummeted to zero. In fact, in the post-audit, we had, I believe, only one patient for one day that we could say, oh, I mean, we could have done better. So if you think about the PNUs and charges in patients with avoidable EN interruptions, we went down from a median of eight days and a cost of approximately $1,300 per patient to um, that one day in a patient with $164, which is our flat PN rate. So while this study was not a well-designed study to look at cost savings, it's almost become zero. So um, I think this has been very gratifying to see that uh, all this while we do have patients that could have been fed enterally, and all we needed was a concerted effort and a stepwise algorithm that allowed us to uh, get there faster with nutrient delivery goals by the enteral route. That's an impressive degree of progress. Now, you don't have cardiac patients in the unit in which you were looking at this algorithm. Is that correct? That is correct. So we have a separate cardiac intensive care unit. And in fact, sometime uh, 
almost five years ago, uh, Nancy Broadus and her group uh, and Ravi Tigrajan from our cardiac ICU actually looked at a similar process with enteral nutrient delivery optimization in patients with single ventricle, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the hypoplastic group. And they've actually reported this in uh, pediatric critical care medicine themselves. And I believe this was in 2009. And their enteral feeding algorithm in hypoplastic left heart syndrome post-stage 1 palliation showed similar results where the Kaplan-Meier curve showed a higher number or proportion of patients achieved their goal nutrient delivery faster. So there is a precedent for the cardiac ICU patients also benefiting from such a uniform approach. And we are in the process of expanding currently that enteral feeding algorithm for hypoplastic left heart syndrome patients to the overall cardiac ICU group. And, and I believe uh, there might be practice changes and improvements in delivery coming uh, to that group shortly. What is your approach to enteral feeding in children who are receiving vasopressors or inotropes? Again, um, uh, amongst the mental barriers that I alluded to, <laughs> this is a big one. It's um, one I've run into. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and it's, uh, it's always a common one. I would still find it challenging to convince both myself and the group in some patients who are on vasopressors, whether I should feed or not via the gut. The one thing we believe in is uh, one cannot be over-anxious to get enteral nutrient delivery, and especially in patients in the neonatal age group where necrotizing enterocolitis is a reality. Again, the cardiac ICU being a classic place. So having said that, I think a cautious approach where uh, you are not seen as uh, just an over-enthusiastic enteral nutrient delivery group, but but a group that uh, does cautious approach to safely deliver it is important so that the entire group feels comfortable following the algorithm. But but specifically in in answer to your question, uh, I'm guided by people who've looked at it in the past. So King and uh, her group, this is the uh, Emory uh, Children's Hospital group from Atlanta. They documented their experiences with providing enteral nutrients to patients on vasopressors. And they found uh, two things. One is, yes, there are cases where there may be a higher level of intolerance in this group. But at the same time, a large number of them can be fed enterally. And uh, the number of complications are not uh, dramatic. Uh, I forget the exact numbers right now, but there were minor cases where they had to back off. And again, what we believe is in groups like this, whether it's vasopressors or or patients on ECMO or patients who have previous aspirations, we believe that an algorithm that allows you to approach it with caution provides guidelines on when to stop and what to do in terms of perceived intolerance in these groups would be perfect. And finally, I would say our approach, both in the cardiac ICU, I can speak for them, and down in the medical surgical ICU is one where if you are not actively being um, uh, actively resuscitating a child with ongoing fluid resuscitation, if the inotropes, vasopressor medications have been static and stable at the same infusion rate, we would feed patients even on two inotropes uh, or vasopressors as long as they are hemodynamically stable. So what are your next steps? Where do you go from here? I think the this was the simple <laughs> part. Uh, I think we, we now go on to... Um, Exactly what you said, what about the outcome? So uh, as a leader, you would want to know from your group uh, as to how does this translate into outcomes. And that's our uh, our big challenge. Can we actually show that we've realized the, the benefits, the putative benefits, the touted benefits of enteral nutrition? 
So the current study stopped short of that. And now I think we need to examine the impact of a uniform approach and improved adequacy of feeding on outcomes such as um, infectious morbidities, uh, better surgical wound healing, length of uh, mechanical ventilation, length of hospital stay. And for this, I believe we would need a larger effort. And it would have to be a multi-center collaborative approach to see if we can impact. And we, we would have to be guided and partly learning from the mistakes uh, from some of the adult studies. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not sure if we know exactly what the best approach is. The multi-center randomized control trials in the adult world have failed us. We still are left with uh, the glass very smoky. And at the same time, uh, what we've conducted from our group is um, multi-center observational cohorts, but these are merely hypothesis driving. Um, the next step might be to collect a group of like-minded centers who have faced similar challenges, who buy into the prioritization of uh, nutrient optimization, and then identify simple but logical and feasible outcomes to conduct stepwise interventions. I would suggest, you know, you mentioned looking at the benefits of enteral nutrition, but that you also need to look at potential harms, aspiration, uh, gut ischemia in those on vasopressors that's commonly raised as a concern, uh, and so forth. I completely agree. In fact, our most uh, current study about to start in a week from now is one looking at uh, EN intolerance and how does one better define optimal gastric emptying. And uh, and our next study is the mucosal integrity. And there are other people studying that as well. How does one get a better sense at the bedside on uh, uh, the mucosal integrity and readiness to feed uh, uh, for our patients. Uh, and I agree, I, I think all this is moot unless we can deliver these nutrients safely. And one uh, side effect will make us take five steps back in this process. And again, um, I think um, uh, the one thing I would say is the story that has been told again and again is one of energy delivery. But we feel more so now than ever before, as do adult uh, critical care folks, that the big story is protein delivery. And uh, whilst in, on any given time in our unit, we have patients who are at risk for underfeeding, which is bad, but also overfeeding, which is equally bad. And we recently showed that almost 80% of our patients at one time were being overfed when we started measuring things. So, so overzealous feeding is certainly uh, not to be endorsed. But then the protein delivery is almost universally low. In fact, uh, we have now finished our second international study, which we are about to submit for publication. But we had 1,200 mechanically ventilated patients from a much larger cohort of international PQ. And the protein delivery is dismal. It has not changed at all. Less than 35% of what you and I prescribe at the bedside is actually being delivered. And it is, once again, a very strong correlation or association with outcomes such as survival. So I think the focus needs to be on both energy, but more importantly, on protein in the near future. Do you have advice for other groups who might be interested in developing a feeding algorithm such as yours? Sure. Uh, again, um, uh, it would be sharing of our experiences, and I would strongly recommend that groups look into their practice. Nothing is more revealing than a simple audit of your current practices, and we were comfortable in the myth that we do very well with nutrition until we actually documented what our delivery and adequacy and our barriers were, and it is very revealing when you do that kind of a study. And once you've done that, I, I believe that an algorithmic approach or a uniform approach as a group is a must because 
on one hand, we can raise our hands up and say there's not much evidence and hence we'll do what we like at any given day. On the other hand, unless we make a uniform approach, we wouldn't know what we're doing is uh, right or wrong. And we've clearly shown, as have so many other single centers, that there are benefits in terms of at least achieving what you said you wanted to achieve in terms of nutrient delivery goals by such a uniform approach. And finally, I think very recently in the Journal of Parental and Enteral Nutrition, Dr. Martinez from my group published our experience with the international studies where we asked people uh, participating in our studies to share their algorithms. And we've actually described uh, multiple such algorithms and their uh, individual uh, features in that paper, which might be very helpful both in terms of knowing what people are doing out there and how does it compare with both both evidence and multi-professional society guidelines like the critical care medicine and the nutritional society guidelines. How do people compare in terms of their practice? So I would think that might benefit people who might be enthused to take an approach like ours to try and examine and try to improve nutrient delivery by a uniform approach. Thank you. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make today? Sure. I think the big thing we've learned in this process is that it is time perhaps for us to think that nutrition delivery, optimal nutrient delivery cannot be relegated to the sidelines and at least awareness and discussion around what we are delivering to our patients on a daily basis is relevant and very important. And whilst there is a lot to be studied and the evidence base is still very skeletal, and I think it's, as we said, next five to 10 years that we need to build more robust evidence for what we do. I think a cautious, individualized approach is the only way out. So algorithms guide us, but at the end of the day, for every patient, there must be an individualized approach. Um, The adult studies and pediatric studies seem to suggest enteral nutrition is probably a much better risk-benefit ratio. The safety profile is much higher than parental nutrition, and hence an approach to optimize that is probably prudent. And then in the coming days, we might have to figure out what the role of parental nutrition is. I would recommend people read the adult studies, the the APANIC trial, the ANZIX trial, and the SWISS trials, which have tried to elude what is the role of PN in our units. And until then, an individualized approach to determining the energy and protein goals and carefully selecting patients with a functioning gut, excluding those with a sick gut like you alluded, and then regularly monitoring for intolerance should allow for safe administration of enteral nutrients in the ICU. So it's an exciting field, Dr. Parker. I'm, I'm delighted to be looking into it, and I would urge people, if they haven't already, to try and jump in. We need champions, and we need a lot of work to be done. Well, thank you very much, Nilesh. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. I Once again, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. We have been speaking today with Dr. Nilesh Mehta about the article, A Stepwise Enteral Nutrition Algorithm for Critically Ill Children Helps Achieve Nutrient Delivery Goals, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in September 2014. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by Nestle Health Science. Our pediatric portfolio offers a comprehensive range of standard and specialty formulas for oral use and tube feeding, including Peptamin Jr., a 100% whey protein peptide-based formula for children with GI impairment. Nestle Health Science, nourishing personal health.
Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.